Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of the 1904 Olympics. Susan Brownell, professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, is an expert in Olympic Games and Olympic history. She brings us the story. I became interested in the Olympics as an athlete, actually. I mean, from the time I was quite young, I just really wanted to compete in the Olympic Games. And one thing led to another. I got a full athletic scholarship to college, and I competed at the elite level in track and field. But I just wasn't good enough to make an Olympic team. I uh, competed in the 1980 and 1984 Olympic trials. My best finish was seventh. But I was uh, lucky because um, I was able to convert it into an academic career. The first Olympic Games had been held in Greece, in Athens. And so that had really stamped the character of the early Olympic Games, which were connected with Western civilization, which actually was a sort of fairly new concept at that time. It was a concept that was um, emerging as uh, Europe tried to figure out what it had in common versus the rest of the world. And so the games were linked with this, you know, glorious 
tradition going all the way back to classical Greece, which was shared by every culturally Western person in the world, supposedly. The second games were held in Paris, Pierre de Coubertin's home stomping grounds. Uh, they had been less successful because they had been held together with a big exposition, the Paris Exposition of 1900. Coubertin had thought that would be a good idea, but in the end, they just kind of got lost in the mix with this huge exposition that was going on. So heading into the next Olympic Games in 1904, he had not wanted them to be held in association with an exposition, and originally they had been awarded to Chicago. At that time, the World's Fair was scheduled for 1903 because it was a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, which was in 1803, but they couldn't get their act together and they were behind schedule, so they had to push back the opening a year to 1904 and they were planning a huge amount of sports events. James Sullivan was the president of the Amateur Athletic Union, the most powerful man in sports in the U.S. at that time, and he was the one organizing the sports um, in association with the World's Fair. Well, in 1901, there had been a big exposition in Buffalo, New York, at which he had declared that he was going to organize an Olympic Games because the Europeans didn't organize them and the Americans could organize one if they wanted. He got into a fight with Coubertin over that and eventually he yielded. But I think you could see that it would be a natural thing that in 1904 he would want those sports that he already planned to organize in association with the World's Fair to be designated, you know, at least part of them as Olympic sports. So there was a huge sports program surrounding the World's Fair, which was not all Olympic. The World's Fair went on for six months. That's how long they typically last. And the sports program went on for that entire time. And there were about 400 events and several thousand participants. And then within that, only a small uh, chunk was designated as the Olympic Games. And that was where you had the international participants. And it was quite dominated numerically by Americans because Europe was in a recession at the time. The Olympic Games really didn't mean much at the time anyway, so there just wasn't a lot of desire on the part of Europeans to send representatives to those games. The Americans really didn't care. They just weren't quite as obsessed with national identity as Europe was because, of course, this was in the time period when Europe was leading up to World War I and nationalism you know, in the worst sense, really was growing day by day in Europe. The Europeans had this notion about all the pomp and circumstance and protocol that sh should surround Olympic Games. Part of it borrowed from the monarchical traditions. So like at the first games in Athens, the king sort of appeared in, uh, for the opening ceremonies and marches in and takes his place, you know, with his retinue, and then other people follow and they express obeisance to the king. So monarchy was just kind of big at those games. Well, we didn't have a monarch. So, you know, the, the Americans just weren't into all that kind of display of power and hierarchy. That what they were into was the, the quality of the performances. Because, and that actually, uh, linked up with something else that was going on, which was the commercialization of sports, particularly by the Spalding Sporting Goods Company, which really utilized those games to advertise its products. And part of what they did was to provide um, equipment and, and help renovate facilities so that the, the technological part of it was really the best Olympic Games held to that date. Of course, the Europeans could care less about that, but that you know, because of that, many of the performances were quite good and world records were set, of course, mostly by Americans, but... <laughs> and, and that was really what the Americans cared about. But for that, they got labeled by the Europeans as utilitarian. That was an insult back then, and it came up over and over. And I, I think by that, the Europeans meant they, they just don't pay enough attention to, uh, enough attention to, you know, culture and refinement, civilization, um, appearance, protocol, and they, they just, you know, wanted to do the sports. <laughs> and that's, that wasn't quite right in the European point of view. And also the sports were partly being used as a tool, which was to sell, sell the products of Spalding Sporting Goods. 
Now that was not the case with the marathon because by, at that time, you know, there wasn't a market in running shoes. And another important point is that, and this was characteristic of the first three games, athletes represented their clubs, not a nation. Representation by nation didn't happen until immediately after the St. Louis games. But in the case of the marathon, it was even more casual than that because basically if you showed up at the starting line, you could jump into the race. And that's why it's such an interesting event, you know, compared to our typical assumptions about what Olympic Games are like. And you're listening to Professor Susan Brunell. When we come back, more of this story, the story of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Professor Susan Brunell, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, who is an expert in Olympic Games and Olympic history. And by the way, what interesting storytelling. America wasn't interested in monarchy. We didn't do power that way, she said. We cared about the performance. And by the way, in classic American spirit, how to commercialize that performance. Now let's return to Professor Brunell talking about how casual the marathon event was for the 1904 Olympic Games. There were a number of well-known long-distance runners who showed up at the starting line and were ready to run a serious race. And then there were those like Felix Carvajal from Cuba who had, well, he had a reputation in Cuba because he would sort of run across the island and raise money. He was a bit of an oddity demonstrating his endurance. And he had caught a ship to New Orleans where he lost his money in a casino and he had to hitchhike from there to St. Louis. And he showed up on the starting line uh, wearing long pants, leather shoes, a little beret. And apparently one of the competitors said, this isn't gonna work real well in 90 degree heat to be running in long pants and got out some scissors and cut his pants off to about just below knee length. And uh, so, you know, there were amusing stories like that. There were the two men who were called Zulus at the time. So they were from South Africa. We've recreated their biographies, um, Lin Tao and Jan Mashiani, and they were Tswana. They were members of the Tswana tribe. Lin and Jan jumped into the marathon uh, barefoot and did amazingly well, especially considering that, that one of them got run off the course by dogs who were chasing him. And after his detour rejoined and Lynn ended up getting ninth and Jan 12th. So the race itself was just not well planned. I mean, I think the attention that was given to the course or the facilities in other sports somehow just didn't <laughs> happen in the case of the marathon. So it was about 90 degrees um, heat. It's very humid in St. Louis because we're right here at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The road was dirt, dust, uh, most of the way it was dirt. It went out into the suburbs. Dust was being kicked up not only by the runners and there were cars driving alongside the runners kicking up dust, but also they hadn't even stopped traffic. So normal traffic was going on along the roads, delivery trucks, people walking their dogs, so the runners were just dodging everything. The dust was so bad that one of the runners collapsed and almost died from a ruptured esophagus, I believe, who was hauled off to the hospital and would have died if not for emergency surgery. And most of the runners didn't finish for that reason. There were only two water stations. Um, and that was an interesting part of the, the state of sports science at that time. It was believed that you should not drink water while you are running. So they deliberately dehydrated the athletes, essentially. Um, that may, might sound crazy to us today, but I actually remember when I was training as a track athlete in the early 80s, even up until then, it was believed that you shouldn't drink water 
while you're running, while you're working out because it might give you stomach cramps. So, so that belief persisted for longer than you might think. So anyway, they're, um, they're running nearly 26 miles. They were dehydrated, it was dusty, and a lot of them just dropped out. The, the guy who was originally declared the winner, Fred Lors, he, he was a, a well-known long distance runner with legitimate credentials, um, but uh, part, about nine miles into the race, he got cramps, as most of the runners were getting because they were dehydrated. And he hitched a ride with a car um, till close to the end when he got out and ran into the stadium for the final part of the race, as a result of which he was declared the winner and the daughter of the president, you know, declared him the winner. But he was very quickly revealed because, among other things, he'd been riding along in the car waving to the other competitors and to the spectators. Well, he, 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 he said it was just a joke that he had never intended to accept, you know, being declared the winner and he was taken by surprise and all that. So who knows how premeditated that was. It could be that when he came in and they, you know, they thought he'd won, maybe it was just too appealing to try to get by with the lie. The American uh, Athletic Union didn't believe him and did ban him from the sport for a year. But interestingly, he then one year later won the Boston Marathon. So then the man who was declared the winner, Thomas Hicks, was another interesting case of really bad sports science because he also was deliberately dehydrated. Sullivan had actually sort of pinpointed him for special treatment as a, um, a guinea pig, literally, for Sullivan's theories. So not only was he not allowed to drink water, even though he was begging for it, um, they did sponge him off with warm distilled water and they had some brandy that they were prepared to give him if he just couldn't go on, which um, at one point he's even begging for the brandy because he's so thirsty and they wouldn't even give him that, but they were drugging him. So they gave him egg whites mixed with a little bit of strychnine sulfate, which is maybe uh, not quite as bad as the strict, straight out strychnine used as rat poisoning, but strychnine sulfate is also used as rat poisoning. So it, it is poisonous, uh, it's deadly. It causes convulsions and cramps, but it was used at that time as a, a stimulant in very small doses. So he was basically being given a stimulant. But he was lucky because any more of that, he probably would have died. So by the time he got to the finish line, he was collapsing, hallucinating, it's a little unclear whether he got across the finish line by his own power. Maybe he was sort of carried by with a man under each arm while he sort of moved his legs. <laughs> In any case, he was declared the winner. So that was the official winner of the marathon in St. Louis. The diversity was really kind of an American feature of those games. But that was part of the messiness that the Europeans just didn't like. You know, they wanted everybody to be organized behind national flags. And that was what happened immediately afterwards. There was an Olympic Games called the Intermediate Olympic Games. They went back to Athens in 1906. It was an, an official games at the time, but the International Olympic Committee these days refuses to recognize it as an official Olympic Games. But that was the first Olympic Games at which there was a parade of athletes with athletes marching behind flags and at which there was a medal ceremony when the flags of the athletes were raised and also national Olympic committees were in charge of designating who got to compete. So very, very quickly from the messiness of St. Louis, we got this well-ordered national representation that characterized, has characterized the games up until today. Debates still rage about the um, history of Olympic participation for different countries. So the world wasn't divided up into countries in the same way then, and in particular, athletes didn't compete representing countries in 1904. But that has meaning today, and because there are medal tallies on the uh, website of the International Olympic Committee, and there are historians who keep track of how many medals has one country won throughout Olympic history compared to the other country and who was the first medalist for a particular country. And these things really matter. People get very angry about them. So the problem for these people is that in St. Louis, you, you have to go back and reconstruct and it's open to interpretation as to exactly what country these athletes were representing. 
So there, anyway, it's just amusing how strongly uh, some people feel about this. There are letters petitioning the International Olympic Committee, and you know, it it just gets very heated sometimes. What happened in the, the split between the Europeans and the Americans in 1904 is one that can that has continued up until the present day. And there's just been this uh, difference in that Europeans prefer more sort of culture, protocol, symbolism, and Americans are more utilitarian and, and our sport is more commercialized. This has just been a sort of continual conflict, which is a, you know, a cultural difference that's worth thinking about inside the International Olympic Committee. The Europeans control the organization, but the Americans provide the vast amount of the funding. And so it's basically money versus power, culture versus profit. It's a tension that has continued up until the present day. And great job as always by Faith and a special thanks to Professor Burnell. And the difference between us and Europe still prevail. Uh, differences aren't bad um, that are to be celebrated here in Our American Stories, the story of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we love telling immigrant stories, stories about folks who came here to get their peace of the American dream. And today, our own Joey Cortez brings us a story of an immigrant who would make his mark on the American advertising industry. Here's Joey. Mark Barrios lives in Colorado, and he designed the arts for a product all of us know and many of us love. But before he became a successful commercial artist, his journey began somewhere far warmer than the Colorado Rockies. Here's Mark. I was born in 1944 in Havana, Cuba, way before the revolution. My parents were divorced at an early age, but life in Cuba was like a regular teenage kid. I mean, we were raised in a middle class. I was able to go to a, a private school. We spent the time summer in the beach, and um, to, to me, it was kind of paradise. And then I was 14 years old when Castro took power, and that's basically when my life completely changed. Within weeks, he started nationalizing the industry, like the, the electrical industry, the sugar. After my grandfather had passed, he had left my grandmother like a total of six houses, and she lived in one, and she was renting the other five. Well, right away, they confiscated those five houses, and they said, well, we're going to keep giving you the rent that you're collecting from the houses, but those houses now belong to the state. So I was not going to inherit the houses, my mother or my uncle. Those houses were taken by the state. A lot of the uh, my books were burned in some of the major streets, uh, and they were introducing new books into the school system. My school was uh, confiscated, and turned into Friends of the Soviet Revolution. In every city block, they will have a committee of the revolution. So if you did, if you were to school, if you did the daily affair, they knew what you were doing. But let's say that you wanted to go and spend two days in, like we used to do, spend some days in the beach, you will have to let them know. They, had, they needed to know where you're going to be every single day of the week, and that's the way to control the people. Obviously, the freedom of the press, that right away, that's one of the first things that they took down. They took out um, freedom of religion. I mean, my God, they all the, they confiscated private schools, especially those belong to the Catholic Church or any, any religious group, like the one that I was uh, attending to. I mean, all our freedoms got taken away. They took away our guns in, in the, for the sake of the revolution. They took away your guns. Sins that you take for granted are taken away. And then they will put people in the firing squad just for disagreeing with the, with the, uh, with the revolution. Some people were put in the firing squad because they were trying to conspire against the, the, the but that's no reason to put them in the firing squad. They got, they got rid of all of them. And, and Che Guevara, which not, it wasn't even a Cuban, I mean, here they, this guy, he was the, you know, of all the criminals in Cuba, he was probably the worst one. Originally when Che was brought in, he was brought in as the treasurer of the country. After that, then, he took over the tribunal to start processing the people that they have caught, and uh, that's when things got out of hand. He wanted to get rid of anybody that disagreed with, in any way with the government. There was no, you know, they were not taking anybody, leaving anybody alive. If, if they disagree, if they can prove, or not even prove, they had a hint that you were anti, uh, anti-government, uh, they w- you could end up in that firing squad. But they think that into the thousands and thousands I were killed by Che. As a matter of fact, I think the only reason that Che Guevara left Cuba, I don't know, the, I don't know really obviously what happened. I think Castro finally said, hey, go someplace else because you're really 
you know, if you continue in this path, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna kill the revolution. And that only, that only has to do, and then take everything away, whether you have a house or you had a business, and then you put people in charge that were brought, people that were not qualified to, um, to run those businesses, so they took the whole economy, was the, the economy collapsed. It didn't make any difference whether Russia was buying the sugar from Cuba. It was basically a lot of the middle class business owners started leaving Cuba, a million of them left, and then you start putting people that were not even trained or qualified to run the businesses, so the economy collapsed. Once the economy was collapsed, then they had full control. I mean, they relied on on the government. They, they nationalized the banking industry, they nationalized the energy sector, the petroleum industry, and everything was controlled by the government. It's still controlled by the government. And, um, you know, you, you, you make, in Cuba nowadays, you make more money as a, as a taxi driver of one of the old American cars that you are as a, as a doctor or, or as a professional. So, ah, man, those are very scary days back then, and and um, and I was kind of lucky when I was told to put when my when my uncle told me to, uh, to told my mother to uh, whatever it takes to get me out of there. It's because after the Bay of Pig, uh, sure enough, Castro the first scene after quenching the 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 invasion, he started grabbing all the uh, teenagers and uh, send them to what he called help the farmers, but it was really basically send them to concentration uh, camps to help with the with the sugar, uh, to cut the sugar canes. But I, it was really basically um, a concentration camp to take them away from the families, at least for a period of time. So yeah, it, it, those were very sad, sad days. Arriving on a student visa, Mark and his mom managed to escape the sadness for a place of hope, the United States. He and his mother made Colorado their home. While maintaining a full-time job, Mark attended the University of Boulder as a full-time student. And although his mother and uncles who lived in the States wanted him to become an accountant, Mark had a different vision. He had a passion for art. My major was in fine art and anthropology, which, you know, I, I don't know how you either become a starving artist or, or, uh, or a, a teacher. So uh, a friend of mine uh, told me about a school called the Colorado Institute of Art, which was more of a commercial art advertising. And that was really fascinating to me. I mean, what a way to communicate with people visually. So I, I started attending there. I found a job at the hospital, at a hospital working in the x-ray department from uh, Friday to, to Sunday, uh, 40 hours, so it was great. I didn't have a life, but at least I have a, a full-time job, but I was be able to, to go to school at the same time. So I graduated in 1966 uh, from the Colorado Institute of Art. And you're listening to the story of Mark Barrios and what a story he tells about Cuba. And we've had several other remarkable stories told about Cuba before Castro and then after. They took freedom of the press away, freedom of religion. They took away our guns, the things that you take for granted. They were all taken away. The economy collapsed, he noted, because all the middle-class business owners left and the people unqualified to run the businesses, handouts from the Castro government. Well, they ran them into the ground, and the economy got run into the ground. You noted that you could make more money as a cabbie than you could as a professional or a doctor. All the incentives of work and moving up were just taken away and stripped for the greater good, for the revolution. When we come back, more of Mark Barrios's story here on Our American Story. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Our American Stories and with Mark Barrios' story. Mark was born in Havana, Cuba, escaped the Castro regime, and moved to Colorado with his mom, where he graduated from the Colorado Institute of Art. Let's return to Mark with the rest of his story. After spending a couple of, uh, spending about a year working for some smaller agency, I was approached by uh, Coors. They had an opening in their art department. So I... I took that, that job. I was all, also married at the time. 
my previous marriage. And uh, so I figured that that might be a more secure job to have a Coors. And then in 1975, Coors' biggest competitor, the Miller Brewing Company, took the industry by storm with their release of a light beer, Miller Light. That changed the whole industry. Miller Light started taking a lot of uh, shares away from uh, Coors. Coors already had a hot product, the Banquet Beer, which they marketed as America's finest light beer, not based on calories, but flavor. But with Miller Lite's success, some folks in the company began to question, maybe we should make an even lighter beer to compete. The management of the company, they felt that Miller Lite was going to be a fad, that light beer was not going to be around for, for a long time. Well, obviously they were wrong. But at the same time, the company had brought a, a new guy into the picture, one of the family's son, and that was uh, Peter Coors, and he was in charge of the marketing department at the time. So Peter took over, and he, he felt that we needed to introduce a live, a live beer. Um, and I guess you're in the right time at the right place. Uh, they have created a live product before, but it was too close to our existing, the existing Coors Banquet. So basically, not only Miller Live was taking business away from Coors, then here we are, this new Coors Live package was so similar and look was so similar and advertising was so similar to the existing Coors that that brand was cannibalizing our own brand, our, 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 the, banquet, the banquet brand. So, I'm sitting one day in my uh, desk during lunchtime, having my lunch. And Peter approached me and he said, what do I thought of the, of the product? And I told him, basically, it's just too, it's just too, uh, too close to the original Coors. And, um, and I didn't care too much for it. So he told me, I would like you to start designing a new package. Well, uh, so I was pretty excited. And after my boss got back <laughs> that, after, that afternoon for lunch, I told him, I said, man, Peter was here. He was really asked me to design a new package. Well, because he had designed the previous package, he didn't want anything to do. But then he basically told me, no, I don't want you to, to do it. And I said, well, I cannot be in the middle. You're gonna have to. To make the story short, um, Peter came back and he basically told him, no, Mark is gonna design this. He's gonna work on this package. So I started working on it, and one of the packages I was designing it was playing with the using the silver. I thought that the light category they, they were using both, both both Weiser and Miller was using the white, and to me it was too medicinal. So when I was playing around with the colors, I noticed that this the silver because it was really attracting, it was very clean, was very fresh, very contemporary. It reflects in the shelves, so. I ended up um, kind of pushing for that color as a background color, and the brand, you know, supported me on that. They, they took it to focus group, and they liked the product, but they didn't think it looked like beer. So, but anyway, Peter decided to roll with it, and because the other the other package was not doing any good, and obviously, the rest is history. Coors Live became. Uh, grew very rapidly. Uh, yeah, there was college kids that started calling the Coors uh, like the Silver Bullet, so what a better place. We were probably smart enough at the time to accept that phrase. It, you know, sometimes you spend years and years trying to develop a slogan. This one was created by the consumer. So Coors Light became the, the Silver Bullet. I was promoted to the head of the department. So basically, I was in charge of all the advertising, all the uh, promotion, the point of sale, the packaging for the different brands. So little by little, I was be able to build an art department to a, a creative services department of uh, over 36 people, including, you know, uh, including creative directors, copywriters, art directors, production people, multimedia people. So we probably became one of the largest uh, in, in-house creative services. I tell you what, if I, if I had to uh, give credit to somebody who changed my, that changed my life, basically, and in a very unexpected way, it was Peter. 
Mark went on to open his own business and landed promotional jobs with several blockbuster hits like Batman, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, and Space Jam. He has truly lived the American dream. Even an immigrant with a thick Cuban accent can be successful in the American advertising industry. Sometimes you, you talk to an accent, people don't listen to you too well. And that's human nature. There's, I'm not throwing any, anything there ex other than human nature. So this visual thing I was be able to, to do was very, to me, it became, it solved a problem. It solved a way for me to be able to, go, to communicate visually. I'm creating a, a, a look and then there are people accepting them. I don't even have to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. They're accepting me or a product of me. They don't even know me. I think that was done in Jurassic Park. It was done in, in, in Coors Light, obviously, very successful. So yes, every when I go by, I mean, changes have taken place in Coors. Some of them have been good. Believe it or not, I think they have done a very good job in protecting the essence of what my vision was. Now the package today is so much different when the package that was done in 1978, it's almost like day and night, but that essence, that feeling, that crispness uh, that I envision is still there. Mark is now retired and married to a spouse he dearly loves. They have three children together who now, as adults, wish to further connect with their Cuban roots. At the end of 2019, Audrey and Alex and Christopher, my middle son, they said, hey, Dad, you know, they want to go to Cuba. I said, you guys should go to Cuba. I said, well, we're not going to Cuba without you because we want to, you know, we want to see our roots uh, and you have to come along. And I really didn't want to. I said, you know, I, I just don't want to go and be depressed by, because I've seen pictures of my high school, places I used to live, places I used to visit, you know, and I, I really wasn't, I, I don't want to go to that, to that place. But then I said to them, you know what, let's, Let's go ahead, I will do it. Just because of you guys, I will do it. So we were all excited, I started making the plan. At the last minute, my, my wife, um, mother, she's you know, 81 years old, she can't even hardly walk, she decided she wanted to come. And we felt that wasn't, you know, that wasn't really. So we're going back and forth about because if we go to Cuba, she won't be able to move around, there's nobody there left. So we, and then suddenly COVID hit and uh, we did cancel the trip because obviously I, uh, we were not going to go there. So that happened at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of two. That's we were scheduled to leave on March, uh, and that's when you know. As a matter of fact, we had uh, plane tickets already, and and that's when COVID hit. So we never got to visit Cuba. So I still don't know if you know. I'm getting older, and I'm still in good, fairly good shape for being an old fart, but uh, I will do it for them. I won't do it for myself. I, I, I find myself very, very lucky that, uh, you know, that I was be able to come here with $5 in my pocket, a change of clothes, and, you know, have a wonderful, over time, have be able to, to raise a, a wonderful family and give, and give that family the the freedom uh, to be living in this country because obviously if I would have had the family it could have been the same family could have been in Cuba so at least the family here be able to have the freedom that uh, that they can that they have by living in this country and now I have a next generation family the grandkids are growing up and and be able to see them grow and it's just 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 very gratifying I know that you're interviewing me, but man, how many, oh my God, I have millions of uh, stories probably like mine. I, I'm only one of those stories in the naked city. I mean, I'm sure that there's, a, you know, and I, I think that's the beauty of a country like ours, man. It's just so many opportunities for anybody that have a passion that are willing to do things a little bit different. Um, opportunities are there. And my goodness, there's just so much here. And it's so beautiful. He comes to this country in the end with $5 in his pocket and a change of clothes. But as he put it best, 
he was given the gift by his mom of freedom, and he's passed that freedom gift along to his kids. Mark Barrios' story here on Our American Stories. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.